Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it's had on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Dr. Tyler Pierce knows the philanthropic sector extremely well. As Executive Director of Local Investment Toward Employment, aka Light, Dr. Pierce and her team are fundamental in helping people become employable and stay employed. We need to have really honest conversations about charity and what makes a good good gifts and, and maybe beautiful gifts, but actually gifts that can perpetuate the very inequities that we actually would like to see ended. I sat down with Dr. Tyler Pierce to talk about self-care and wellness during COVID-19, the dynamics of the philanthropic sector, and how we have to focus on changing systems of oppression to truly overcome poverty. Tyler Pierce, Executive Director of LITE, Local Investment Toward Employment, aka Light. Thank you for being on the Because and Effect podcast. Thank you for having me. I've known you for a few years now. I've interviewed you and we've done a video together back in the day for the Winnipeg Foundation. Um, so how, I haven't spoken to you about COVID, so that seems to be mainly what the questions kind of uh, at least start to revolve around here. So how have things been going for you and your team? How has COVID affected your day-to-day and, and how are things generally for you guys right now? Okay, wow. big. That's a big load of questions. Um, but, you know, on one hand, I actually think I've recently feel, felt that I have a clarity right now um, that I don't know that I've ever had. And I, you know, I just had my four year anniversary at Light as the executive director. So I'm like now the longest serving executive director, um, which feels really good. And so some of that clarity might be emerging from that. But I also think that my clarity and, uh, and I'd love to talk more about it, clarity of purpose, clarity of like, of feeling like I'm a part of a sector that as a sector, we need to speak together, clarity of that we have knowledge that we need to be telling donors, be telling foundations, be telling government, be telling the public right? Um, So I have a lot of clarity that's coming out of COVID. Um, But it has been an exhausting, I don't know how many weeks, I think it's six months now. Um, In terms of, you know, and this goes across, I would say this goes across all the sector folks that I work with. So I really work in the community economic development sector, um, largely in Winnipeg's inner city or any place within the city or the province that has pockets of poverty, often intergenerational poverty. Uh, So, you know, we all had to shut down, we all had to go home um, for organizations that are like a frontline, serving people food, serving people emergency care. Like they took a couple of weeks to like figure out how are they gonna keep serving. Um, And so what we did, because we're kind of a back end organization, and we're an organization that plugs in with all these front-serving organizations to create job opportunities for people. Um, so what we immediately did was we uh, created something we called emergency wages as a grant that we gave to, uh, I think it was five organizations. We gave them money so that they could also hire people who they were serving to be a part of that emergency response. Um, and so really what happened from the beginning is us and and all the all the partners that we work with we just quickly 
changed how we were working and what we were doing. Um, and often we were working, of course, independently. And then we would say, hey, this is what we're going to do. Does this work for you? Are you interested? And they'd be like, yes. And so like the, the pace of collaboration and getting things done was pretty phenomenal. Like, and so, so some of that clarity that I opened with is really coming from that. Like, this is possible. If we just take away sort of certain notions about process and understand that the purpose is to solve a problem, we could, we know we could do things, right? And then, and some of that was, of course, funded by the federal government in particular and by the Winnipeg Foundation also. Um, and so that made it possible for us just to get the work done that needed to happen. And so, so there was that. Then there was the other project that Light worked on is we partnered up with a social enterprise called The Cutting Edge, um, which is owned by the Canadian um, Muslim Women's Institute. Um, and they, they get people training in using like industrial sewing machines to get into that side of manufacturing that actually has a, you know, a pretty healthy sector in our city. Um, so we paired up with them and Pollux Hardware Co-op, which is a community owned uh, co-op in, on North Main. And, um, we made, we got them to make masks. So non-medical cloth masks. Now masks right now are slowly becoming in places particularly that have more cases um, are becoming uh, required to wear. Um, but this is like in March, right? Like in March that, you know, the, for the first like 10 weeks, you know, the, the sort of policy side, cause the science wasn't there yet. They were saying, well, we don't know. We don't know if this makes a difference. Now they're saying, oh, now that we've done some studies, we can say definitively, but we just, we just got this partnership up and running um, for that social enterprise, the cutting edge. They needed some orders in order to actually just start production. So we said, we're gonna make those orders. So we made those orders. We have an online store. That's the last time we talked, we talked about uh, Lightbox. So the, the store online is called shop.light.mb.ca. And it's branded as Lightbox because we originally started it. as It's a box that we're gonna put goods made by social enterprises and we're gonna sell it. And so we kind of looked at that site and said, well, we have this site, it's just sitting there. Um, we absolutely had to cancel what we were planning on doing. We were planning on releasing a summer box. And we're like, well, no one's gonna be buying anything that was gonna go into that box. So let's just cancel it. And then we just rejigged it on the back end to be able to offer individual products. And so we just got it up there. Um, and then because where we're located, we're located at like 76, um, for 765 Main Street, you know, sort of tucked in behind the um, the rail line. So people always have trouble finding us. Like I joke with everyone that shows up my, up at my office that like, did you get lost? Of course you got lost. Everybody gets lost. It's okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so we didn't want people to have to come to us to pick it up. So that's why we partnered with Pollux. Um, so people would buy on the website and then go to Pollux and pick up what they ordered. So like this is a partnership that came together like so quickly, um, so collaboratively, right? Like when we began, we actually priced the mass wrong because at the time, uh, at the time there were a lot of home sewers that were advertising that they were going to do mass and the price was kind of set at $10. So we were like, that's what the market said of that. I guess we have to offer it that. And then when we analyzed it, like after the first two weeks, we were like, whoa, do we ever not, can we ever not sell this at $10? So anyway, 
So just to give you a sense of like the, the amount of work and, and chaos. Um, and then at the same time, you know, previous to COVID, we had someone who was a part-time um, coordinator of Lightbox. Um, but she was no longer able to work because she had small children. And then just before COVID, we had um, our admin person got another job. So very good for her. So no admin. Um, and then the other part-time position we had did events and uh, volunteer uh, coordinating. Mm. But that position itself was paid for by doing events. So funded through social, a social enterprise. Well, all that was gone, right? So, so we were kind of like left with like myself and one other like 30 hour a week person. And we were like, whoa, like it was very, it was so much work um, day to day um, that really figuring out how to pace myself and pace the organization and really keep, make sure that I was doing my job of like keeping the board informed keeping donors informed, mm -hmm. keeping all the people who are involved in the organization informed of what we're doing and why, mm -hmm. while still making sure we could deliver on what we said we're going to deliver. You know, like talk about intense, you know, I'll it's take a, a breath and you can answer. <laughs> when it rains, question. it pours. Hey, like, wow. No, I've, that's been a very, um, similar thread with a lot of people that I've talked to both in the sector and outside the sector, because the needs don't go away. If anything, they're getting worse or, you know, if, if, if anything, it's exacerbating some of the issues that you're trying to solve. Right. So when, how are you trying to make sure that you don't go, you know, bonkers and, and lose your mind, but at the same time, making sure that your, your deliverables are all there and you're still making sure everyone's informed. Like, are you, have you had to make a conscious effort to, um, you know, say, okay, at this time I have to just turn, turn my computer, shut my computer down. And this is just Tyler time, you know, or, or what's, yeah, what's the process been yeah. like for you to try to stay sane and while you're trying to stay afloat as well? Yeah. Yes, I would say absolutely. I mean, I think I had a couple of things in my back pocket that have served me really well and I've amped them up. So let me tell you about them. The first is that I always say this to EDs, especially new EDs, is that one of the hardest things about the ED job is that there are always going to be things on your desk that are not getting done. And some of them just remain in your desk and like you'll, you'll find them buried under paper and you'll be like, oh, I can't believe I forgot about that. But, but realistically, every single day, every single Friday, you are going to leave and there's so much you haven't done and you're going to feel like a failure and you, you need to, you need to like squash that. that. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. it's just like, that is actually the job. There's actually too much to do. Too little time. So, so I've been self-coaching myself on that because I've also been telling other people that, <laughs> and they've been telling me. So that's like something that's just good to know. Um, the other thing is. Uh, I think over the last two years in particular, I've become more, more of an observant Jew. And so what that means is that like I have a Shabbat practice. And so my Shabbat practice involves like turning off my, t my phone, packing it away. I largely don't even turn on my computer or engage in the internet, except for like going to like Zoom services, which is, which oh, is kind of different, right? Yeah. Um, and so... And that practice has re really served me well, right? So it's like, and 
part of that practice, particularly combined with like a prayer practice is like a prayer practice for like a Shabbat morning really starts with like, there's a whole like section that is like about gratitude, Mm. right? So it's like, you're, you're not praying for something for yourself. You're praying, you're, you're like saying, Hey, wow. Thanks. Oh, oh, wow. Thanks. Oh, this is so amazing. This is so amazing. So you go through like an hour of, of just like recognizing all the ways that you have so much to be thankful for so much that you're just wowed by. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like that practice and that practice you can do every day. And I actually do that. That's the one Jewish practice I actually do every day. Mm -hmm. Um, While I walk my dog, I think about all all the things like, wow, like there's there's trees. Thank you. Like, well, I have this dog. He's a (laughs) a companion. Like, so like really getting yourself outside of work, right? Because my mind, like, and, and I struggle with this every single day, go for a walk. First thing with my dog, I'm automatically thinking of all the things that are on my desk and all the words and how am I going to deal with that? And so what the practice does is it's like, no, like you're not going to think about this now. Like you are going to deal with that. But right now you're just going to be like thinking about the bigger picture, thinking about like the gratitude pieces, because what that does is, is it creates space, right? When you're in panic mode and, and I mean, our organization and so many organizations have, actually been in crisis mode and they're actually still in crisis mode mm-hmm. um it's only you know somewhat mitigated by the fact that you know many of us just received an emergency grant from the winnipeg foundation like that's the only reason i'm able to sit down with you and say oh yeah i have time an hour for a conversation mm-hmm. if you would have contacted me two weeks ago i would have said no i'm redoing my budget again for the third time this year because mm-hmm. the government has not given us our funding and they're probably not going to we're in another crisis right so, so the thing with the gratitude that is so important is that it gets you to just step back and put like what are critical tasks in perspective, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, this is going to get done. And it's a very small moment in your entire work life. <laughs> you know. Um, so that, that has actually been probably the most powerful thing that I really tapped into um over all of covid start from gratitude taking yeah yeah, gratitude and taking the space and convincing myself that indeed for 25 hours minimum every week i do not need to be engaged in the world Mm -hmm. i need to be engaged in like really and really enjoying the joy of life as it presents itself Mm -hmm. so yeah. yeah, I think that's applicable for personal lives too, not just professionally, because I think a lot of people are very, I know for a fact that a lot of people who have small children at home who aren't used to having small children at home 24 yeah. seven uh, are certainly could probably benefit from every morning waking up and just being thankful that you have this time. Yes, it might be t- tough in the moment when you're, you know, pulling your hair out because someone just, you know, painted the walls with crayons or whatever kids do I have no idea but um, yeah starting from gratitude is such an important you know piece of that have you been able to lean on other EDs and just kind of share best practices when it comes to how do people are handling the crisis modes like are you guys con- in contact yeah often? so one of our main projects is called the bi-social program so it's a part of a, we're like the prairie region of a national network that is interested in promoting social procurement 
the growth of social enterprises, the health of social enterprises. And so through that program, very early on, we had a few, um, we called them um, water cooler Zooms. So Mm -hmm. like kind of like not like with a huge agenda, but just like, let's see each other's faces. Let's give an update. Um, So we did that, but also like, you know, SedNet, which is another organization uh, sort of back-end organization also did a number of those. Um, some of them, you know, much more around a particular theme. Um, so we participated in that. And then, you know, there's some people in the community, the social enterprise community that also organize uh, getting together weekly. So they, they also quickly moved to a Zoom. And that was a really important way of making sure that we were connecting with other organizations. Um, and I think that allowed not just us, but others to engage in seeing how they could work together to quickly respond to things. Like, I think mm-hmm. that that is like a key part of, of why, you know, many of these frontline organizations were able to, to make sure when we weren't like that, that COVID didn't get in and didn't start spreading because mm-hmm. of the kind of quick fire response. Yeah. That's huge. Our, when you see sort of the mainstream reporting on what COVID is doing either down in the States or here or both, what's something you wish that the average person knew about underserved communities throughout this pandemic that maybe isn't getting touched on or hasn't been talked about yet? Yeah, I think the thing is like for underserved communities, it's really that what we're seeing now is really just something that's all, like being the inequity that's always there is just heightened and highlighted. So like, I mean, and even like this goes beyond underserved communities or like impoverished communities, but like say the lack of childcare and then Mm -hmm. the the number of women in particular that are being left out of the labor market. Like this is a problem actually always, this is a structural problem in our society that keeps people from all across the social spectrum to having successful work lives or successful careers, you know? Um, So we're just seeing that highlighted. And the same thing goes for, you know, people who say are located in Winnipeg's inner city, the most poor uh, places in our city. And so, and a lot of it really comes down to income, right? And Mm -hmm. sources of income. So like outside of social assistance, um, what are other people's sources of income? Well, they're all things like, begging selling drugs selling your body scrapping they're all these like really damaging things damaging to individuals damaging to society many of them mm-hmm. um and then we have social assistance which again only really serves a very small portion of people um but also doesn't actually give people enough to actually live on it's not it never provides an actual adequate income and so you have all these other activities that really entrench people in cycles of poverty Mm -hmm. that have to be combined with that right so i feel like what i don't think people have seen this i don't know like my sense is from the news that people aren't necessarily seeing here's where the problem is Mm -hmm. Um, but that lack of income problem you know, equals a housing crisis. It just does. Like it equals a meth crisis. It equals crime. Like those are the, those are the outcomes of a lack of opportunity to have a reasonable income in which 
you aren't worrying about where, where your next five to $20 is coming from. Mm -hmm. Cause that's honestly where people are at. Yeah. It's desperation too. And that's it's, what it's it, absolute desperation. That's Thank the word you. I yeah. was using. I was kind of not debating, but discussing um, situations when it comes to poverty and stuff. And I said, you don't, you don't, you're not frustrated by the human aspect of it. You're frustrated by the desperate person. Someone who's desperate is, you know, they'll do anything to survive and you can't blame them for that. So like, as soon as desperation comes into the equation, then all bets are off and you don't really, you know, that's what you're, you know, if you're scared to go in certain parts of the city for whatever reason, it's because of you think people are desperate there. And if we solve the desperation problem, then there will be a lot fewer social, you know, effects of that. Um, when you talk about clarity at the very start of our conversation, yeah. are you starting to sort of expand your circle in not just your immediate kind of problems that light is trying to solve, but also perhaps, you know, on a provincial level, on a federal level and, and starting to really, you know, expand your, uh, who you're speaking with and try, who you're taking meetings with and trying to solve problems on a more structural and, 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 and systemic level, as opposed to just on a person and, and human level. Is, is that something that you're kind of Absolutely. Of? I have, I've literally said to my board um, and, and also to myself, right? Like as someone who's running a charity, We've all been sort of taught and coached to, you know, not be political, not be too political. And we have to report any of our political activities. And it's actually kind of like hard to like even keep track, like what, what falls into that category. There's a, there's a real hesitation to say, you know what, this is something that needs to change. And I just said to them, and, and we haven't, you know, I'm not speaking here just as an ED of light. This is not light's position. I'll tell you what, what I think we should do as an organization, but this is not the sort of, this is not, this has not been approved. Um, but I, I really think, you know, we can no longer hesitate about saying as an organization that really wants people to get into the labor market, to have that chance to break into the labor market. One of the things that is stopping people is they are in that desperate situation we we're just talking about constantly. So we can come in, someone can earn $30 and that means that that week they don't have to go begging all around, you know, the inner city or uh, go visit all the, uh, all the um, food hamper program places that week, next week, they're back or next month they're back. Um, but we could easily solve this problem if everyone just had a guaranteed income. And if everyone had a guaranteed income, then when we provide a $30 job, this, they have to expand the, the mind and body and spirit in which they'd say, Hey, you know what? I, I, this is something I can do. I'm recognizing that like, I have that those confidence issues, but I have skills issues and I, I don't, I'm not yet ready to be able to show up. Like people can have that space in which they can start to show up. Mm. And then they could have that space to like, Oh, is there a longer term program or is there an education program here? We have to give these people pathways, right? Like, so mm -hmm. I love the work that light does. Like I, I adore the work that light does, but I'm so frustrated that, we do like one fifth of what we, what the need might be and it's spotty and it's like, and that's a problem. And it's also, we work with so many people. Like, so I think it was like 273 like job experiences last year. And it's like, so many of those situations are like, we, we, we relieve someone of that from that begging, selling your body, stuff for 
one week or one month. That shouldn't be our goal. I mean, it's not our goal, but like that shouldn't be what we're doing. We should be like really getting people excited about work, um, feeling like they can, they have some enough experience in their pocket that they can say to a part-time or full-time employer, yeah, I, I, I have experience. I have something on my resume, right? And, and right now it's, it's just not enough. So I think, I think the, when I say clarity, I, I really mean like, I just want to cut through a lot of BS, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I just want to be like, look, public, we're not going to solve poverty by you coming to the inner city with your gifts of diapers, like every other week or wipes or whatever. They're lovely. They're actually beautiful that you would, you would think to come bring them. I, I want to honor that. But I also want to be like really pointed about like every time you come with, let's say a case of diapers, I also want you to go to the province and go to your MLA and go to every politician. You also need to put the equal amount of time and cost into saying policy needs to change because it's just impractical for people to, to be bringing this stuff. This is not solving poverty. It's, it's band-aid, you know, it's a band-aid effect. Yeah. Man, it just makes me so clarity. Now, you know, I'm kind of like, because <laughs> this gets me raw. But, but I think it, clarity comes when it's like, you know, I really think that as organizations, we need to say we, we're, we are doing good work, right? Mm -hmm. And even the people that are distributing things like that, they're doing important, vital work, but it's so emergency-based. And we need as a sector to say, we need to get off the emergency treadmill. We need policy change and we need our public to go make it happen for us because like we're really scrapping it together. Mm -hmm. We don't actually have advocacy time and money. Yeah. Well, yeah, the business model is reactive as opposed to proactive, right? So you're going to be constantly slamming into these systems that aren't changing, you know, these oppressive sort of by design systems that are holding people down. So until that even happens, all you can really do is just try to stave it off as opposed to, you know, escape from it, which is not really optimal, I think. Yeah. And I think it's also about like, we need to have really honest conversations about charity um, and, and what makes a good, good gifts and, and maybe Beautiful gifts, but actually gifts that can perpetuate the very inequities that we actually would like to see ended. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting. Like the we controversy to me is really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, both as like, <laughs> you might need to edit this out. <laughs> but like both as like, you know, the first time I was really aware of that charity, I was like, what, what is going on over there? Like, it's like flashy, like it's like a light show at an arena, I'm trying to understand the value. I'm like horrified at the amount of money going into putting on this kind of light show. Yeah, a lot of flash and maybe not as much substance as could yeah. be. Yeah, and done. so and so as a as someone who leads a charity and works with other organizations, like last year I think we worked with like 23, 24 organizations. So we have a lot of contact. Um, I think we've all been very hesitant to sort of not publicly critique each other but like at least say you know what like are you are you doing this activity because you've been kind of forced there because you're not receiving enough funds elsewhere 
um, and you're trying to serve like a very desperate, like people who literally need food or, or like we have a hesitation about critiquing ourselves critiquing like what counts as charity and like what is what charitable model are we using um and again i think that just comes from desperation Mm -hmm. and i think that's a really bad desperation is a very bad policy like foundation to work on (laughs) (laughs) it's just like this is not helpful um but also and more to the the bit the larger point is like we also need as um you know we're a donor-based organization right so 60 percent of our budget comes from individual donors again beautiful um but we've been terrible as a sector about saying how we need to use that money right Mm -hmm. like so it's like you know we don't we don't push back on people that when they say well i want this to go directly to this program it's like okay so you don't want any of it to go to staff but who do you think does the work you know like you don't want it to go to paying for the rent but how do we do our work without space right like so we really need to have these like kind of tough conversations with everyone who is engaged and then we also need to be able to speak about public policy like federally provincially and at the city level now there are thankfully organizations that do do that and i'm so grateful to them but i think more and more we act, I think my organization always really hesitated, right? Like we, we are an organization focused on like reducing poverty. Um, but we haven't necessarily had a statement about, about income or about, um, EI rates or about housing. And, and it's like, I'm really thinking, Hmm, that's a real failure. Yeah. It's all because inter- it's all intertwined. It's not just you, you don't just solve this one problem by solving this one problem. There's you have to solve this one pr- problem by also addressing the entire system of inequity and the entire, you know, things. And that are also going on. we need to claim some expertise, right? Like, mm. I'm sorry, but like I have a degree plus like years of experience of working in this sector. I understand like the the everything that happens behind the scenes and why it happens. And I need to be able to go to some people and say, this doesn't work this way. You need to let us do what we know would work. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and then there's been, and, and then also to hear more about some of the, where we have made progress. So, and and again, I want to give a real shout out to the Winnipeg foundation here because last year they gave us um, some money to support the light box. And really that light box was the most experimental thing that we have done at light and what that enabled, not just like this product or this site, is it enabled a mindset change? So the mindset change was like, you know, when an opportunity shows itself that makes fiscal sense, that absolutely makes social sense, we need to take all the space we can and move forward on it. So that's was the mass, right? The mass came up, you know, at a certain time in my organization, you know, we probably would have like, you know, had multiple, you know, committee board meetings about do we sell masks? Do we not sell masks? You know, what's all the bit? And, and we were just like, no, this makes sense. I could quickly do a, a, an economic model of it. I even made it a price change, you know, a correction I told you about earlier. Mm-hmm. And, and all that could happen so fast because we have changed our mindset from, from this one that was, you know, very, bureaucratic in some ways to one that's like we need to be able to experiment and some of that means we need to be able to fail um but we 
if we can show social return, economic, like zeroing out, or even a little bit of loss, we can actually, we should be able to manage that. Let's do it. Some of these things aren't complicated, right? Yeah. And, the, and, the, and, and the funding that we actually received from the Winnipeg Foundation, I just want to give like credit where credit is due here, um, allowed that thinking to change. And I think that if we want to get really serious about allowing the charitable sector and the nonprofit volunteer sort of sector to actually do the work they're really good at, we need to allow them to lead, like lead with ideas, lead with experimentation, and and get people to listen mm-hmm. right now and and this is where the clarity comes in just recognizing all the ways in which we like silence ourselves or like or you know we don't we don't want to we don't want to offend we don't want to get in political trouble and it's like no this needs to be a part of a larger conversation we have as a society right yeah 100 you know I mean? it needs to shift from perhaps the haves saying here's some here's some resources, here's what you should do with them. It should be, here's some resources, I trust you exactly. to do what you do, right? Because exactly. we're, we're on the front lines, we're the ones that are, you know, seeing people and, and, and having that, you know, face-to-face contact and, and that's how you solve problems as opposed to from, from a distance, yeah. Well said, great conversation, but at the end of our time together, I Already? do. Wow. Well, I, I mean, I want to let you go. I know you're a very okay, busy yeah. person. <laughs> I guess I have um, to get to work, yes. Exactly. Um, we do a thing called Just Because, where it's seven questions. Don't think about it too much. Just hammer off the answers. You okay to do that? Yeah, sure. All right. So question one is, what's the very first cause you ever remember even caring about? Uh, probably environmental. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the 1990s, I even bought my mother uh, cloth bags. Oh, for groceries? Uh, it was 25 years before, you know, Amazing. it really became popular. But she she was an early adapter thanks to her ridiculous daughter. Yeah. I love it. That's great. Did anything kick that off or do you just remember always caring? Um, No, you know what? A biology teacher in high school had me do some kind of research project. So I did a research project on sustainability. So sustainability was a buzzword. And so she wanted me to just go and research it. What was it? Analyze it. And I, so I went through like, newspaper articles, policy papers. I mean, I'm a high school kid. I didn't know what any of this stuff was. And I became very puzzled. And I came back to her and I said, you know, I'm reading this stuff about sustainability. And it just seems like it's not really about like the earth. Like it seems like it's just like, this is, here's how we can cut down the forest and feel good about ourselves. And she was like, (laughs) yeah. Um, So it was this first kind of experience that I had like, doing analysis where where what what something was is was actually not straightforward um and so that kind of clued me into the fact that there are multiple approaches that are competing um and some become dominant on how to like solve problems um and as as our conversation attests then this has become clearly a a good habit of mine Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah well i think one of my favorite quotes or sentences is just question everything if someone tells you something question it no matter who it is no matter what authority they claim to have like question it and figure it out for yourself because i feel like a lot of times too many people are just okay if that's what you say then that's what the way it is and we'll we'll go with it and that's why we're in the position that we're in in a lot of cases question two if money politics and logistics were no issue at all for you 
So you could just snap your fingers and something would happen. What's the first thing you would do in support of your current cause? Uh, well, the first thing I would do is have a guaranteed income for people. Were you watching the uh, conversation around, you know, Andrew Yang and the universal basic income in the States and all that? Have you been following any of that? No, I haven't. And, you know, and I haven't even really been following, you know, the conversation as it's been in, in Canada or mm -hmm. Manitoba. I, I just, I just think as a, how I see people held back it's just so clear that there's just an income issue and that we can't get people to move on and, and move up and, and get out of emergency situations unless yeah. they just have, they, they're not competing between do I keep my housing or do I eat? Yeah. Do I like feed my children or do I lose my children to care because I decided to keep my house, right? Like I just think that's the, that's number one. Just solve those basics. If everyone can eat, live, you know, have clothes and food, like, yeah. Can... And I don't, well, well, here's the thing. I don't think it's actually simple, right? Like I think that For sure. the part of the one time I dug a little bit into some of the conversation about basic income is there's this, there's a little bit of a belief that we, if we have uh, this basic income, we don't have to, we can get the money from the charitable sector. We'll just turn it over there. Um, there is like a, there is a line in that policy stuff that, that basically says, where's the money going to come from? It's going to mm -hmm. come from that charity sector. And I actually think that's, that's really naive. I think that the charitable sector would do so much better in terms of longer term results, even midterm and short term results. If like, they're not just doing band-aid, we have to get them out of band-aid. I mean, where, where the charitable sector is doing the best long-term work is like, they're helping people through trauma right? Like getting people to actually do the healing and get their lives stabilized. And often that's just providing like transitional housing or housing. Mm -hmm. So, but the, at the core there is you are income systems for people who are like dire poor. They're not, they're not ex non-existent basically. Yeah. Get them out of the desperate situation and then we can build a healthy and happy life on yeah, top of that foundation absolutely. for sure question three what's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about the cause i think that people think that um it really comes down to the individual right like pound the pavement mm. with your resume and you'll be mm. fine and actually it's mostly systems that trip people up um and so that goes from the very youngest person graduating from a high school in the inner city but not actually being all that able to write and so we'll, even if they're the most brilliant graduating, they will go to university and fail because they actually don't know how to write, right? So like that's a failure of a system, not of the intelligent of the person. Um, to transportation, right? Like if you don't mm. have a bus that like will deliver you safely in your neighborhood, you can't actually take on that job. So like it's all of the, the systems that actually keep people unemployed and unemployable. And I yep. think that's a huge misunderstanding that people have. I could not agree more. I, I, I get into the pull yourself up by your bootstraps argument pretty frequently and no one is self-made. There's no such thing as a self-made, you know, anything. Everyone has needed help along the way. And if you, if you haven't had that help or don't think you had help, I think you need to look a little bit harder and, and <laughs> practice gratitude first for, for all the people. Uh, Question four, what's a time in your life where you had to pivot? Well, maybe aside from COVID, 
Oh gosh, aside from COVID. What's a time in your life where you had to pivot because plan A wasn't working out? Oh man. You know, I, I just think that, that pivoting is a part of life actually, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I, I, I can't even like pinpoint one piece because I feel like maybe my, my life is this way anyway. I'm kind of, it's always changing. Like it's, it's very, life is very unpredictable, right? So I feel like what I've had to, my hardest learning was around uncertainty. Cause I used to be very anxious about it. Cause, cause I, you know, I don't have kind of a family that supports me in any way. I just don't have that income or I just come from a very working class fragmented family. So never had that sort of anyone to fall back on. So, so uncertainty was always something of high anxiety to me and learning to learning and kind of making some kind of peace with mm-hmm. the idea that actually you're always going to pivot. Life's always going to prevent you with these changes and that actually you have in you the capacity to get through it and the capacity to get through t- bad times and always the capacity even in the worst situation to be to do that grateful to be grateful right like (laughs) so there you go philosophy of life there that might be my favorite answer to that question just those those simple words of like pivoting is a part of life because i think far too often we think like oh well a change is you know this big life altering moment but if it if you just almost train kids to think like every day you're gonna have to make a new plan and change your direction yeah, I, they, I honestly think one of, of anxiety. one of my favorite things about life <laughs> is like it has been so un- has has had so many unexpected things that when I look back five years ago at my life now, I think, wow, I could have never imagined how how wonderful this this is, right? And then if I look like ten years back, that ten year old me or that ten years of old me looking five years forward would be like, who is like what's happening? So life has so many surprises and not all of them are good, but wow. So I think, yeah, like pivoting is totally a part of life. Great answer. Question five, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Okay. So the best advice I've ever been given was I was about to defend my PhD thesis and I went to see my uh, advisor and I was very nervous like my 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 mouth was dry I was like hyperventilating and he said Tyler the PhD defense is such a special time it's the one time in your entire career that someone is going to listen to you for 45 minutes about your ideas and your research mm-hmm. so this is a guy who just for context is like a lead scholar in the world of economic geography like he's like internationally known he's telling me that and he said, from my experience, no one's ever listened to me like <laughs> at my PhD thesis. So this is a guy who people listen to and he's telling me this. And so I was like, okay. So then I went into the defense and I had fun, right? Like I, I got to tell people about, you know, I've been researching this and writing this for quite a long time. And this is what I think. And this is what it, and we argued and it was fantastic. So I have passed on that piece of advice to anyone that I know who is defending a, a PhD thesis. So that's a very limited number of people because I think it's fantastic advice for going into that situation. But I also think again, that that advice applies everywhere. Right? So it's like, there's been days, especially like in the last six months 
where I go into the office and I am like stressed out. Like I'm like, oh man, I don't know if we're going to survive the next three months. And I say to myself, this is a moment. This is a moment. And it's maybe unlike a lot of other moments or a lot of other places. So take whatever opportunity this right now presents and live it up. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, just so, so like, cause it's really about like being present in the circumstance that you're in and using the power as limited or broad as it might be. And often it's limited, right? And going with it and just living, like living it. Yeah. So, Yeah, the concepts of presence and gratitude and all these things are sort of newish in my life, but have have been monumental in changing just the amount of stress that I have the you know, the any problems that you have as long as you're just anytime you're just present in the moment, call it meditation, call it whatever you want. But like it, it's it's night and day from how I used to be when it comes to dealing with deadlines and stress and, and, you know, interpersonal struggles or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, Yeah. that's such good advice. So on the advice train, question six is what advice would you give your 10 year old self if you could talk Uh, to her right now? Yeah. So, so my 10 year old self, and I would still say my 44 year old self, um, I'm a crier. Okay. Um, and I've always been a crier. I've always been like emotional and upset about injustice. Um, upset about more than injustice. Like, just like, (laughs) I I am an emotional person. And my 10 year old self was probably at that point between childhood and like adolescence and adulthood where the shame of being a crier really kicked in. Right. And so there was a point a couple of years ago where I realized I hadn't cried and I hadn't cried in a way that I used to know that I cried. And what I really did a lot of thinking about is like, oh, what's the loss there, right? Like, because what I would tell my 10-year-old self is that like, the crying you're doing is actually a source, like it's a source of knowledge. You're crying about something that maybe people aren't seeing as a problem in your immediate world or your larger world. And so recognize that as a source. It's also a way of shedding the pain of that so that you can can, you know, move to your analytical brain, give yourself space for that thinking, but see that as a source for, for, for like, you know, until very recently, I saw that as a thing of shame as something that I had to shut down, something that I I shouldn't like talk about or own. And now I'm at a point and hopefully like the, you know, this last next, you know, 10, 20 years, you know, pray for that, uh, will be me just really owning that as a person who, I'm going to cry. Like I, if I need to call someone up and cry because I, there's such injustice that you can't deal with. I think that's a source. And so that's what I would tell that 10 year old. That's beautiful. And I, I needed to hear that when I was 10 as well. Cause it's like, you know, growing up playing sports and, you know, boys don't cry, suck it up, get out there. You're fine. All these sort of toxic concepts. Um, my, my partner actually, recently sort of taught me you know feel the feelings feel the feelings if you're feeling something live in it like experience it you'll feel yes it's going to be 
unpleasant, we'll call it for, for, you know, 10 10 minutes, but (laughs) the clarity that you have after and the, like the wave of, you just feel so much better after you actually feel the feelings. And that was a concept for 30 years that I was just taught. No, 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 no. Don't feel those feelings. You know, I think people who are, you know, in boy bodies, like I think our, our society has really given them such a bad deal because even though I was basically told not to cry and grew up with a shame around crying or thinking that was a weakness. I think it's doubly, triply, you know, massively more, um, for, for boy, boy bodies. And that, that, that's so tragic. Yeah. I mean, that could be another hour long podcast. Oh man. We'll we'll save that for round two. when we, when we have you back last question, Thank you so much for doing this, Tyler. You've been amazing. What do you What do you want to be remembered for? Oi. So um, I think, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you the, like, academic answer. Okay. I don't know. As I think about it, maybe I'll, maybe I'll rewrite this as we talk. But uh, I really feel like our concept of the labor market and our practices, like our policy practices, our institutional practices, our HR kind of level practices are just so narrow and are just so like without imagination that if I got serious about really wanting to change people's conception, and again, I'm not doing that, I'm not an academic, I'm not really interested in being an academic, um, but I, it's something that I really want to force myself to start talking more about. Um, so I would be remembered as like someone who like changed someone's mind about, about the labor market and that we have power to shape it. Um, and I say that and I'm like, oh, maybe that's a silly, maybe that's a silly like thing to be remembered for because I don't know that I'm actually doing that work right now. Um, and maybe that's just as a little like, nudge to myself to say, oh, maybe you need to be doing more of that work. Um, I think more like humbly, I, I hope that I would, could be remember uh, as someone who like has a lot of love, right? Like who, and ha- will, will live vulnerably because at my best self, I am living in a vulnerable way. Um, that means reaching out to people talking about some of the things we've talked about, but also like putting myself on the line, right? Like not kind of holding dear, you know, even an institution I work for or a job I work for, but holding dear the the very core, which is like that we are, that everybody deserves to live a good, full, wholesome life, right? Mm -hmm. So, so that's what I hope that's the actual real answer and then the other answer is like you know if I if I could get people to think differently that would be amazing I think I'd be very humbly happily happy to have people remember me for that other piece well I think you can so I thank you for being vulnerable on this podcast thank you for being honest and the conversation but I would yeah my advice is keep talking about these things in every circle you because I'm getting fired up I want you know I'll follow you into war like i'm, oh, I'm, in. Man, I'm on right. board 
So if you continue to do that work, I think people will uh, will hop on board as well. So thank you for doing the podcast. Light, L-I-T-E dot M-B dot C-A. Is there anything else coming up that you would like to tell people about when it comes to light? Yeah, well, in the next two weeks, we're starting a project with six partners called Powering Up, which I, I also just like love the love the name of that. It reminds me of how we're superheroes, <laughs> but uh, it's basically getting about a hundred people in our community access to the jobs that we create. So that's, um, and it's going to be very collaborative. I hope there there's ways that we can across the six organization, we'll find resources that we can share among them. So that's the next thing that, cool. I mean, that's the rest of my day is, is doing some of the planning work around that. So I'm really excited. And well, really thankful. This is the the federally funded um, emer- community emergency response. Very cool. I think I may have screwed up the name, but also made possible by again the Winnipeg Foundation and your emergency stabilization grant that was released last week. Mm-hmm. If I didn't receive word that that we were getting this last week, I would still be in panic mode of like I need to figure out what how I can cut 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 cut. That is not a way in which to go do work out in the community when you're stuck looking at an Excel, impossible Excel document. So again, I I don't mean to to go too much, but I I really got to say thank you to the Winnipeg Foundation. Thank you for for having this conversation with me. Thank you to the Winnipeg Foundation because because of this support, I'm going to be able to go into this project with lots of fire, with lots of energy and that means we're going to do excellent work. Heck yeah. Well, thank you for doing that. I'm going to fist bump you now. (laughs) There's a fist bump. Okay. Thank you, Tyler. Executive Director of Local Investment Toward Employment, a.k.a. Light. Learn more at light.mb.ca. That's L-I-T-E dot M-B.ca. Tyler, thank you so much for being with us. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you again to Dr. Tyler Pierce for being on the show today. Every time I talk with her, I walk away with kind of a new sense of duty or inspiration when it comes to helping others and trying to abolish the systems of inequality that plague our society right now. So thank you for the inspiration, uh, Dr. Pierce. And I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon because uh, there's so much more to get to and uh, we only had you know a limited time. Thank you as well for listening to this. Um, If you know someone who would also benefit from getting a little bit of inspiration or a little bit of, uh, you know, a little fire in their step or whatever the saying is, uh, send it out there. If you can tweet it out or share it on social media, it really helps us out. And uh, that's kind of the only way I really get podcasts these days is, is I, someone texts me and says, like, oh, here, you should check this out. Or if there's a new song or new show or new band that I might enjoy, uh, the best way to do it is through word of mouth. So if you want to share this podcast, if you enjoy Because and Effect, tell a friend. It helps us out immensely. All music on the show is produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can hear more of his music at trentonburton.com. Because and Effect is a podcast of the Winnipeg Foundation. Learn more about the foundation at wpgfdn.org or by searching at wpgfdn on all social media platforms. I'm at Nolan Bicknell on all socials. Thank you for listening. And remember, overcoming poverty is not a gesture of charity. It's an act of justice. Bye-bye.